0: 1 Samuel, chapter 25, beginning in verse one, it says, then Samuel died and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, there was a man in Ma'on whose business was in Carmel and the man was very rich. He had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his his sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Shalom, peace be to you, Shalom, peace to your house and Shalom to all peace to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have hearers. Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they're from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us. And we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything, as, as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he's such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five says of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me, see, I am coming after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. Now, David had said, surely in vain, I have protected all these fellows has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he's repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David If I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light, translated, I am going to kill every single man in his family and in his service. Verse 23. Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and foolishness is his game. No, that's not what it says. For as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, Since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand. Now, then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me from this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely By morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now, when when Abigail went to Nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house, Like the feast of a king and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. In other words, he had a massive stroke. And look at verse 38. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose and bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maid servant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. And so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. Have you ever been so angry? That you. Lost control. You were so Angry that for a split moment or maybe for several moments, you sort of disconnected from reality. There's been a few times in my life where that's happened, and I've regretted it terribly. One time when I was working for the Department of Social Services, I happened to be working in the same office as my mom. And my mother happened to be the supervisor of the department. And there was a man who came to the Department of Social Services and he was drunk, as you can imagine, and he was crude and caustic and belligerent and obnoxious. And when he came into the front, because my mother was in charge, she tried to defuse the situation. And this man put his hand On my mother's bottom. And it was like an explosion went off inside of my head. It was like a nuclear bomb. A mushroom cloud. And I disconnected from reality. And I grabbed this guy. And I took him in the back of his head. And I smashed his face against the wall. And I got him in an arm lock. And I started to break his arm. And my mother said stop now i'm okay and i disconnected and i came back to my senses but it was a kind of of a temporary insanity anger can include mild irritation to uncontrollable fits of rage and i don't know if you've ever been angry but you sometimes say things that are wrong We sometimes say things, and it demands a response. And the New Testament tells us that self-control is a fruit of the spirit for good reason. As a matter of fact, self-control is God's antidote for out-of-control anger. Chuck Swindoll used to say, "Anger is a choice that can easily become a habit." Unquote, and he's right. One man describes his anger this way, quote, it's a learned reaction to frustration in which you behave in ways that you would rather not. In fact, severe anger is a form of insanity. You're insane whenever you're not in control of your behavior. Therefore, when you're angry and out of control, there's a kind of a temporary insanity that sets in and. We've studied the lives of Samuel and we've studied the lives of Saul and we've studied the life of David. And by now, as you've walked through twenty-five chapters of 1 Samuel, you've noticed that the Holy Spirit devotes more time to David than to Samuel and Saul combined. David is going to be more quoted in the New Testament than any other Old Testament character. And I want you to remember what's happening. Think about it. For years, David has been running from Saul. David has been hounded. He has been chased. He has been persecuted. He has been deprived of his home. He's been deprived of his family. He's been deprived of his wife. He's been deprived of his job. He's modeled patience under pressure, perseverance under persecution, and faith. When everything is screaming out to go your own way and do your own thing. In this chapter, a foolish farmer antagonizes the faithful shepherd and he becomes furious. He snaps. In a momentary fit of rage, he contemplates the unthinkable. Not only of killing Nabal, but of murdering everyone. Who's a male in his household? Look at verse one again. Then Samuel died and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him in his home at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. The great prophet Samuel passes from the scene and as he passes from the scene, There is a darkness that descends over Israel, if you will. Someone has once said that when a great man dies, when a faithful man dies, nothing about his greatness or his faithfulness dies. I think that that's true. A few weeks ago, my Facebook friend Billy Graham turned ninety one. Worldly historians may not put him in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential Men of the Century, but in God's Economy, Billy Graham has really affected the generation. Clearly, like no other person, Samuel was like that. He was a bright light in his generation. But the spiritual clouds of darkness had been forming over a nation. And you have to understand something. Samuel's job was to call people to God, to to call them from repentance to turn to the Lord. But they, for the most part, had rejected God. You'll remember that they asked for a king. And that's exactly what they got. And it would appear that the last link was gone between God and his people. But that's not true. God's man was waiting in the wilderness. God had appointed and anointed a person who would be king. And you and I have drawn special attention to the fact that like David, who would be king, David's future famous son will also be king of kings and Lord of lords. And you live in a world by and large that has forgotten the reality that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, it's very sad when a country abandons even the pretense of godliness, of decency, of justice and mercy. When a country abandons godliness and abandons decency and abandons justice and mercy, all that's left is judgment. And so the people bury Samuel where he lived in Ramah, the heights. Samuel sought to elevate the people and lift the people in their fellowship to the true and the living God. You know, when somebody dies that's that important, there's an emptiness and an overwhelming darkness. Samuel was the voice of God. He was the moral compass that constantly pointed people to heaven and to the Lord's throne. And when Samuel died, the conscience of a nation was in a very real sense seared and silent. But God's word remains true. The prophet's mouth was silent, but his message was not silent. The message of Samuel the prophet is won't you trust the Lord? Won't you turn from your sin and won't you embrace God for all that He has for you? Can you imagine if everyone in America just for one day, just for a single moment, lived for Christ? I'm not talking even about every day. I'm just talking about one day. Where the whole nation gets up, tears its clothes, puts sackcloth and ashes on its head and cries out to God, not only for the collective sins of the country, but the individual sins of each individual. We're not told if David attended Samuel's funeral, but the text seems to imply it when it says he arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. This wilderness, by the way, was the place where Hagar was sent When she was kicked out of the camp of Abraham in the Sinai wilderness, it was the place where Hagar and her son found grace and life. The children of Israel stopped there on their way out of Egypt. The spies of Israel left from there when they began their expedition into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Sire. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came with 10,000 of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. It was the place where God spoke. And Moses listened. God shined in Paran. It was there that God provided direction in the wilderness. And God's going to shine again. Because David's heart is starting to get dark and distressed. And the Lord is going to use a beautiful and an intelligent woman to get through to David. So in the next section, in verses two through nine, I'm entitling this particular portion. How do you handle an angry man? In verse 2 it says, Now there was a man in Ma'on whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Carmel is a beautiful place in the northern part of the country. And those of you who have traveled with me to Israel know that there's this gigantic peak. This is the place where Elijah faced the prophets of Baal it's a beautiful mountain it reminds me of the vineyards of northern california like grape country it's it's a beautiful place to raise herds and flocks. And if you can imagine in the days of David, many people were shepherds and keepers of flocks and herds. And the the flocks were owned by wealthy sponsors. And they would basically hire shepherds to tend the flocks. And when David was forced into the wilderness, he became a kind of private security force. He became a kind of protector of the flocks. And the basic conflict in this story is David is the employee, and Nabal is the boss or the employer. And when Nabal deals unfairly with David, David wants to do what some of us have really wanted to do in our hearts. Kill our boss. Now, most people today, you don't kill your employer. You resign. Or you get another job. But... David and his men, like I said, were like a rather large private security detail. And they roamed the deserts of Ma'on and then Paran. And they made sure that the local ranchers and the sheep herders uh, weren't raided by thieves or robbers or neighbors. And so there's two kinds of ways of thinking about it. From a mobster kind of a way, you know, people might think like, hey, you know, if you do what's right here, I'll, I'll give you a little protection here. But this isn't that at all. It isn't some sort of protection racket that David has going in order to keep his men fed. It really is security. Basically, there was an unwritten law in that culture. You paid the people who protected you. You know, we have kind of an unwritten law in our culture. When you go to a restaurant... And you have a man or a woman serving you. If that person provides prompt, outstanding, cheerful service, you tip them. You might think in your, in your mind, well, you know, this person has a job and they get a check. But guess what? For the servers who are serving you, they literally rely on that tip. It becomes a part. Of their employment. And in that culture, the unwritten agreement was when sheep shearing time came, you provided ministry and help, number one, to the less fortunate. And number two, to the real people who provided good things for you. And Nabal was a wealthy man, three thousand sheep, a thousand goats. As a matter of fact, that's about half the amount that's listed in the book of Job. So he's very wealthy, but he's very stingy. And then we meet our cast of characters. The name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding. That means she was very intelligent and she was very wise. And beautiful appearance. That means stone fox. We're talking take your breath away beautiful now but the man was harsh and evil in his doings he was of the house of of Caleb now think about it we have a self-serving self-absorbed fool with bad judgment who marries a wise stone fox Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard the expression that opposites attract? Do you think it's true? I suspect that it might be. We have a tired, frustrated, persecuted, desperate leader who's trying to help those people who are who are following him. And now all of a sudden it sounds like a made for TV movie series. And these are the three principles. Principles. Now, Nabal, by the way, in the Hebrew language means fool. Can you imagine naming your kid who, you know what, I'm going to call you fool. Now, we have to understand something. That in this particular culture and society, fool didn't necessarily mean what you might think it means. It meant a person who not only lacked the ability to make good and sound judgments, but it it had a moral component. The idea is that Nabal is a moral fool. And let me help you understand what that means. It means because he refuses to allow the Lord God of Israel to enter into his mind and into the decision making process. And now all of a sudden we begin to understand something differently about that word. A fool is a person who refuses to to listen and obey and think about what God wants for his or her life. And I don't need to see a show of hands. But have you ever been a fool? Have you ever made a decision and for whatever reason you made a decision and you decided not to consult the Bible and you decided not to ask and answer the question, what does God want for me or for my life or in this relationship or on this job? How am I to treat my my mother and my father, my husband and my wife, my children? How am I to treat my neighbor? How am I to exist in the circumstances that I find myself in because the moment that you open up your Bible and the moment you begin to consult the word of God, you you take on a different perspective, don't you? You begin to see the people around you the way God sees the people. And Nabal is from Ma'on, but his business interests are in Carmel. And in, in verse two, you'll remember, it says that he was very rich. You know, in the original language, it says he was very heavy. Now, different Bible scholars have drawn different conclusions. For some, they thought, I wonder if this means like he's a candidate for Carmel's Biggest Loser program. Then he might have had a problem with obesity and in that culture and society. People who were extremely wealthy, who ate like at all you could eat cheap buffets tended to grow very, very large, but I suspect that it means more than that. I think it means weighted with wealth. In our culture and society, we sometimes refer to these people as fat cats. But the man was harsh, and he was evil in the way he dealt with people. As a matter of fact, harsh means stubborn. Belligerent And evil means dishonest and deceptive. Now, remember, he comes from a good family, Caleb. Caleb was one of the companions of Joshua, remember, when they were spying out the land. But even though he came from a good family, he didn't have any of the godly characteristics of his famous family. And so, we have Abigail. And while David is preparing for war, Abigail is preparing for peace. She's not just beautiful. And she's not just wise. She is beautiful. And she attaches herself to the character of God. And then we have David. David has been faithful in protecting the flocks. David has been faithful in doing his job. David is... Homeless and throneless and despised and rejected and poor. But you and I know something about him. Because we know how the story will end that even though he's homeless and throneless and despised and rejected and poor, we know that he's the king of kings. He'll be a king. He will be a king and he will establish a kingdom. And as he establishes that kingdom, he is going to have an offspring who is going to establish a throne that is going to last forever and ever. God is going to use David in a link that is going to create a mechanism where the son of God is going to come into the world in order to provide hope for everyone. And so the passage focuses on two conflicts, a marital conflict and an employer and employee conflict. Now, the first conflict that we see is between Nabal and his wife. Opposites may attract, but these two were probably thrown together through the ancient custom of arranged marriages. Abigail, wise and attractive. Nabal, let's just say, unwise and rich. When you're rich, you don't have to be attractive. Now the two are different. They're different in their character. They're different in their outlook. They're different in their behavior. Nabal ple- treats people like dirt. Abigail treats people like precious soil. Isn't that interesting? What's the difference between treating somebody like dirt and treating people like precious soil? The source of growth and enrichment. This is interesting to me. The woman has a husband who is proud and dishonest and deceptive and stubborn and belligerent. And one of the great lessons in all of the scripture is here. Because we see an amazing situation. We learn something about the way that a wise woman is to treat their husband, even if he's proud and even if he's dishonest and even if he's deceptive and even if he's stubborn and even if he's belligerent. And look at verse four, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. This is the time of the festive. This is the time when the money's coming in. David sent ten young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Now, think about it. David sends men to Nabal. There's ten of them. So this way he can get an understanding of, of exactly what is happening. He says, greet them in my name. David is, in effect, saying, I am sending you, but I'm sending you with a message from me. Now, I want you to understand that because, remember, that's a common phrase that's used in in the New Testament. Remember, Jesus said, go in my name. And when Jesus says, go in my name, we are serving as Jesus's agents. David's message is simple. Shalom. Peace to you. And to yours in verse 7. David reminds Nabal of the services that he's rendered in verse 8. And then David makes his request. And then in verse 9, the young men fulfill David's request. And in verse 10, there comes the conflict. And you'll remember Nabal's response. Well, who is this David? Why should I pay him any mind? As a matter of fact, when he says that, um, he basically says, In verse 10, the Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from his master. It's his way of saying, Who is this runaway slave? Now, this is interesting because when Jesus shows up, when the Lord Jesus shows up, and he says, I need something from you. I need you to follow me. I need you to confess your sin. I need you to enter into a real and vital and personal relationship. You've probably had conversations with people that you know and that you care about. And the conversation would go, you know that God loves you. And that He sent His Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sin and to rise from the dead for your justification. And that... The reality is because Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the the father that Paul was right when he said at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And right now it doesn't look that way. And right now, as you look out over the world and as you look out over the circumstances, it doesn't look like that Jesus will be king of kings and Lord of lords, that he is going to be the one who occupies the throne in heaven. It may not seem that way, but every single person at some point in their life, they're going to die. Die, like Samuel died. And they're going to stand before God. And when they stand before God, they're going to be standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and God's agent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said that God has assigned all judgment to him. Now, if a person really, truly understood that all eternity Rests in the judgment that Jesus makes about you, and that the judgment that Jesus makes about you is determined in this life in which you live. Do you, you think that would motivate people to live differently? You know it's really good news. It has motivated some of you to live differently. You wake up in the morning and you really do understand and believe that Jesus Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the way that you live now and the way that you minister now and the way that you preoccupy yourself now will make a difference for time and eternity. Nabal. Has no idea that David is going to be the king. Nabal has no idea of God's plan and purpose in the living link that David is going to make in the kingdom of God. Nabal says, why should I help him? And look at the personal pronoun in in, in, in verse 11. Nabal says, my, my, my. Verse 11, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? My, my, me, me, my. Let me ask you a question. Does that leave you with the impression that Nabal considers everything... You got it right. You know what? We're a fool. And we're acting like fools. When we get up in the morning and we even for a moment think, this is my house and that's my car and that's my wife and those are my children and this is my ministry. The truth? You've been entrusted with the brain that you have You've been entrusted with the ministry that you've been given. You've been entrusted with everything by a true and living and loving God. The gifts and the callings that you have, they came from the Lord Jesus Christ. The men and the women who are part of your life, your family, your circumstances, it all comes from the true and the living God. And in verse 13, look what it says. Then David said to his men, Every man, gird on his sword. The way I translate this, cowboys, strap on your guns. There's going to be a gunfight. I should say, there's going to be a sword fight. You know, people will read verse 13 and they'll ask the question, well, was David right in asking for help? Did Nabal owe David anything? The truth is, he did. David was patient and gracious. You see, when people read the New Testament and they hear the words of Jesus and they are so bold as to ask the question, Do I owe David's son anything? Do you begin to realize something? That David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from heaven, the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Colossians chapter two, it says that everything was made by Jesus and everything was made for Jesus. The seat that you're sitting on was made by and for Jesus in the cosmic realm of things. Clearly, there's cloth and there's metal and there's an assembly that took place. But all of the ingredients that make everything that you come in contact with every moment of every day finds its origin in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. David was patient. David was gracious. David is angry. Now, do you remember the last chapter when we all met together and David refused to retaliate against Saul? And you thought, This is remarkable. Look at this remarkable sense of composure. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, doesn't that count for something? Have you ever been pulled over by the police because you ran a red light? Do you ever say to the police officer, where were you the 19 other times when I came to a full stop? Do you think he's going to give you a pass because most of the time you stop when it's red? Nabal's attitude and words caused David to go off the deep end. Again, Swindoll says, and I quote, Nabal's actions resulted in David's temporarily losing a personal battle. His anger turned into a consideration of murder. And David orders the men to strap on their swords 400 armed against one sheep herding fool. Question, 400 armed men, one jerk. What kind of a, kind of a conflict do you think this is going to be? It's going to be very short, isn't it? You need to understand something. The real battle that David faces is not David versus Nabal. It's David versus his anger. You see, you might be in a circumstance where you're angry with your wife and you're angry with your husband and you're angry with your employer and you're angry with this government and you're angry in particular with this president and you're angry with this Congress and you're angry, angry, angry about these things. But make no mistake about it, your conflict is not between them and you. It's between you and your anger. The Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. The Bible says, walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lusts of of the flesh. This is every person's battle on one side, anger and hunger and frustration and desperation. And on the other side, there's honor and there's humility and there's graciousness and there's godliness and there's trust. Alan Redpath, in his most amazing book, The Making of a Man of God, writing on this particular passage, he says it better than almost anyone. He writes, and I quote, David, David, what is wrong with you? Why, one of the most wonderful things we have learned about you recently is your patience with Saul. You learn to wait upon the Lord. You refuse to lift up your hand to touch God's anointed, although he had been your enemy for so many years. But now. Look at you, David. Your self-restraint has gone to pieces and few insulting words from a fool of a man like Nabal has made you see red. David. What's the matter? I'm justified in doing this, David would reply. There's no reason why Nabal should treat me as he has. He has repaid all my kindness with insults. I will show him that he can't trifle with me. It's one thing to take it from Saul, who is my superior at this point, but this sort of man, this high handed individual, must be taught a lesson. Isn't that interesting? What is God's lesson? Is the point and the focus of your life and circumstance to teach that person a lesson, or does God have a lesson plan for you? You see, this is one of the biggest questions that you will ever get to ask yourself. Because I am a Christian. Because I love the Lord Jesus Christ, because I am a follower of Christ, because I believe that the Bible is true, because I believe that Jesus has forgiven my sin and washed me and cleansed me, and he's called me out of a life of death and darkness into light and life. Has the Lord Jesus Christ called me to be a different person? You see. As men and women of God, you're called to resolve conflict in a radically different way. When you get a chance, look at Matthew chapter five, verse nine and Luke chapter six, verse twenty seven and Galatians chapter five, verses nineteen through twenty six. And then ask yourself this question. Do you believe that conflict provides an opportunity for you to glorify God and become more like Jesus? Jesus. Because if you are locked in a mental and an emotional battle with someone that you perceive to be your enemy, you need to ask yourself that question Heavenly Father, this is happening. How can I glorify you? Lord, how can I experience what you want from me? How can I use this as an opportunity to serve you? How can I use this as an opportunity to serve others? How can I grow into the image and the likeness of David's son? You know, in the New Testament, Jesus, when he's asking people to deal with problems and conflicts, do you remember what he says? Hey, have you been able to pull the log out of your own eye before you start criticizing other people's circumstances? Are you willing to show. A person his or her fault, but in such a way. That they can know that there's forgiveness available in the hope of Restoration. When you are experiencing opposition and conflict. Is there room for reconciliation in your own heart? Look at verse 14. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us. We weren't hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. In other words, the servant goes to Nabal's wife. It would appear that he understands the gravity of the situation and he asks Abigail for help. And he reminds her of all the good that David's men provided for them, how they had done a fair job of protecting them from real danger. They worked faithfully. They worked efficiently. They worked honestly. And Nabal could care less. And the servant calls Nabal a scoundrel. I found this funny because in the Hebrew text, it doesn't say scoundrel. It says, son of Belial. Now, you may not know what a son of Belial is, but it's not good. When somebody called you a son of Belial in the Hebrew culture, it wasn't a compliment. In the New Testament, Jesus is called a son of Belial. It's, uh, it's the most wicked and vicious thing that you could say. You're, you're doing way more than impugning a person's uh, maternity or paternity for that matter. You're, you're characterizing the person as worthless and worthless in, in the worst way. The servant accurately, and I say that with great intentionality, the servant accurately describes her husband and his boss as a worthless human being who can't be reasoned with. Okay, at least we're all on the same page now. Now, this is interesting because as Christians, whether we like it or not, the moment you identify with Jesus, the moment that you identify with Christ, Everything that you say and everything that you do affects the reputation of Jesus. The moment that you publicly and personally, or even privately and relationally, look a person in the eye and say, I'm a Christian, you identify with Jesus, and as you identify with Jesus, Everything that you say and do from that moment on will have an effect on his reputation. And in verses 18 and 19, it says, Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five says of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins and a partridge in a pear tree. No, and two hundred cakes of figs. Now, I just want you to pause for a moment. Put yourself in Abigail's sandals for just a moment. I know what some of you ladies might be thinking. Oh, great. I'll sharpen David's sword for him. If ever there was a chance to ditch this guy and ditch this marriage. Ding dong, Nabal's dead. The foolish idiot, my stupid husband. Hey, guess what? I get to ditch this creep, this loser husband. It's never going to kill my husband. Should I pray? Dare I hope? You know, Lord, for many, many years, I've been praying how I'm going to get out of this miserable relationship. The answer has come. Thank you, Jesus. You know, it's interesting to me. She doesn't pray that prayer. The woman doesn't fight with her husband. She sees her husband for what he really is. Now, I need you to understand something. She's wise. She doesn't ask her husband's permission to save his worthless life. She doesn't go up to him and say, hey, honey, there's a whole army coming over to kill you. And I was just wondering if maybe I should mm, step in. She doesn't ask her husband's permission to save his worthless life. She does something way more interesting. She protects her husband without his knowledge and without his permission. It's a revolutionary concept, isn't it? She protects her husband without his knowledge and without his permission. And someone might read this and think, Abigail sneaking behind his back. Oh, uh, yeah, to save his life. Yes, she's acting without his knowledge. Yes, she's acting without his permission. But she's acting in his favor. And Abigail knows what to do. How do you handle an angry man? Get some food into him. You know, there's something about a beautiful woman with a picnic basket that just makes even the hardest heart Melt. Beautiful. Wise. And a good cook. Think about it. Abigail brings hundreds of loaves of bread, two keggers of wine, five roasted sheep, five measures or two bushels of raised grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, because when you're depressed and angry, you need a sugar rush. I know this is going to seem unusual for me to say it, but I am going to say it. One of the most godly ways to resolve problems: eat. You know, Italian people figured this out hundreds of years ago. You' angry, and hey, let's just sit down and eat with a little bruschetta and some spaghetti, and to meet the ball. All of a sudden, uh, the problem are going to go away. When Abigail meets David, he is hot. He is red hot. He is angry. He is stewing in his deep anger and his deep resentment. And in verse 23, all the way to 31, if you reread it, notice how Abigail deals with the man who is angry and resentful. She uses tact. She uses faith. She uses wisdom. She understands the nature of God. She appeals to loyalty in verse 23. She gets off her donkey she falls down at David's feet. Now, you need to understand something. She bows herself to the ground. And this is more than just bowing yourself to the ground. She is assuming the position of humility. And notice the words she uses. She directs the blame away from her husband and to herself. Question, is he to blame? Yes, that's the right answer. He is to blame. Then, then why would she direct his anger towards herself? I think my answer might shock you. The Bible says that the two shall become one. What he does, she does. She can't escape the biblical reality that whatever her husband does, for better or for worse, affects them both. And Abigail does what very few husbands are willing to do. But at least a few more wives are willing to do. She assumes responsibility for her partner's failure. And she literally begs David. She begs David to let the blame rest on her alone. And she calls herself David's maidservant. And notice in the passage, if you read carefully between verses 23 and 31, 14 times she calls David Lord. And in verse 32 through 35, David's response is a response of mercy. And grace, David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice. And blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. If he had done that, there would have been awful consequences. Not just for Nabal and her whole family. If she has any children at this point, they're all dead. Especially male children. But now all of a sudden David has his head on straight once again. Abigail. Tells her husband the truth. Now you'll notice in verses 36 through 38. While Abigail is riding towards David and while David is riding towards Um, Abigail, Nabal is feasting while David is marching. And all the while, the passage of Scripture keeps, I'm sure, repeating over and over in his ear. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. By the way, Nabal has a massive stroke. He's dead within 10 days. And Abigail's future is to become the companion of a rejected king. You see, your so-called enemy, the person that you have the conflict with, you may think it's your job to make things right. But God is willing to make things right if you'll let him. He is willing to allow every injury that you've experienced to take it for himself. You know, as a matter of fact, there's several lessons that I want to just draw to your attention before we close. Whatever principles you gather from this chapter, understand that whenever it's possible, you're called to act differently. Remember that a conflict becomes the opportunity for you to glorify God and to allow God to. To do the work that God has always intended to do. To wash you and to change you. Whenever possible, act wisely. Whenever possible, get the, pit, the big picture. Whenever possible, exercise self-control. And when things seem impossible. When it doesn't look like you have any way out of the conflict. You know what it's been my experience? Wait. You know, very, very few times in my life have I made an important decision correctly, hastily. When someone says, you need to tell me and you need to tell me right now, my answer is typically no. If you're going to insist that I, that I give you the answer right now, well, then guess what? The answer is no. But if you'll give me time to think about this and pray about this, If you'll give me time to mull this over and to seek God's face and God's will. My answer might be differently. Remember, remember, remember. Whenever you find yourself in a position where you have little power or little control. Wait and ask God to work. In your life, glorify the Lord. Remember that conflicts provide opportunities, opportunities to trust him, opportunities to live at peace. David is headed for war and Abigail is headed for peace. Ask yourself this question. The next time you get into a fight. Is this worth fighting for? Is this worth my marriage? Is this worth my children? Is this worth my job? Make sure you're free from sin. Restore sinners with gentleness and respect. Speak the truth and love. Take one or two people with you. Forgive as God has forgiven you. Look to the interest of others. Overcome evil by doing good. That's exactly what Abigail does. You know, the Bible says, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In a rare sermon, Phyllis Diller said, never go to bed mad. Stay up and fight. Believe it or not, that's good advice. Stay up and fight. Fight until you have an opportunity to tell the truth. Fight until you have an opportunity to confess your sin. Fight until you have an opportunity to forgive each other. And be careful to walk in the Spirit and be wise and avoid hasty judgments and quick solutions. Solve one problem at a time and remember what the Bible says. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Chuck Swindoll writes quote, Whenever you realize there's nothing you can do, wait. Wait patiently. Impossible impasses call for a firm application of breaks. Don't keep going. Restrain yourself from doing something hasty. Slow down. I've seldom made wise decisions in a hurry. Furthermore, I've seldom felt sorry for things I didn't say. If you don't know what to say, keep your mouth shut. Make no mistake about it. Abigail told Nabal the truth when the time was right. You know, the Bible says avoid people who are angry. In Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four 24, it says, make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man, do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Be careful. You will become like the people you hang out with. And if they're angry all the time, so will you be. If they're frustrated all the time, so will you be. But you're called to be different. You are called To be followers of the person who is rightfully, lawfully, truthfully, and permanently the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Next week, chapter 26. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that sometimes it's hard to obey you particularly when it requires sacrifice. Lord, it's hard to even pray a simple prayer to prune us of our sinful attitudes and habits. Lord, you called us not to be troublemakers, but peacemakers. Lord, you called us to be servants of the king. Lord, you've called us to solve problems and resolve conflicts like men and women who want to glorify God. Lord, we remember the words of our own Savior, Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers. Lord, why would we want to be a troublemaker when we could be a peacemaker? And Lord, we know we know that without peace with you and peace from you, it's going to be very difficult to extend peace to others and forgiveness to others. So again, Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts. Lord, we know that you're far more likely to change us. Lord, I know that when David woke up, the day after Nabal died, he was still homeless. And he was still throneless. And he was still destitute. His circumstances really didn't change. But his heart did. And Lord, even when you don't change our circumstances, we pray that you would change our heart.